Welcome back to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. I'm joined by Michael Vickers, who technically, not yeah, no, technically was my boss while in special operations. Uh, basically, this guy makes Jack Ryan look like uh, child's play, and I'm sure he'll smile at that. Uh, he started off with a career coming from California as well uh, in the uh, Army Special Forces onto the CIA and was eventually the undersecretary of defense for uh, intelligence. Prior to that, he was the assistant secretary of defense for Solik, which for those listening is special operations and low intensity uh, conflict. Mike, thanks for uh, joining us today and congrats on the day your book has just come out. Thanks. Pleasure to be with you, Mike. So, I, you know, I've got to ask you've, you've had a lot of time probably to reflect not only on your career, but the global war on terror uh, watching it end like the rest of we did, uh, the rest of us uh, did, uh, didn't end well. Um, but it seems like everyone focused on that singular event, uh, you know, regardless of how tragic it, it was. Do you think we've done a good job of sort of memorializing all the lessons learned on a national scale? Well, I hope so. You know, one of the mistakes we made after Vietnam was to think we would never do uh, irregular warfare again. Uh, certainly on that scale. And then after 9-11, when we had Iraq and Afghanistan, we had to relearn a lot of lessons. So I hope in counterterrorism, you know, we've developed enormous capabilities. I hope we uh, learn the lessons because there are several very important ones. Um, One, you know, we were in a global fight and a critical principle we didn't apply before 9-11, but we did after, was to deny our adversaries any sanctuary. And then the ways and means we went about those uh, uh, dismantling and defeating those adversaries differed by theater. In some cases, we used partner forces. Some cases, we used special operations raid, you know, real high tempo of raids to, to go after them. Other cases, we used predator strikes and, and uh, used allies to disrupt. And so it depended on the theater what was the appropriate instrument. You need all of them. And you need to keep forces in a high degree of readiness. Uh, um, uh, You know, I hope we just don't turn our back on this because we have them down now, but not out. Uh, I don't think we'll ever have them completely out. And that's the, that's the, that's the continual fight. I will say this from, uh, you know, a young SEAL officer to, well, you know, I got out as a mid-grade officer, a lieutenant commander uh, from the JSOC community. It was impressive to watch how the U.S. government and the U.S. military sped up to the, let's, let's just say, the speed of war and to the magnitude. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, because as you know, you know, before 9-11, we had very sophisticated forces to do an operation, but not necessarily to do a campaign, which was what was required, you know, to, you know, with the, you know this very well, the find, fix, uh, finish, exploit, analyze cycle that turned operations into campaigns. That's what really helped us dismantle these groups. Well, Mike, you've got a very interesting career as we opened up. I, I'd love to go back to the beginning. Uh, you were you lived in in basically Hollywood, California, if, if yep. that's correct. Went, went to Hollywood High School, yep. I, I did read in your bio that you were, you were beaten out for the uh, starting quarterback position by Mark Harmon. I'm sure uh, you, you still hold some regrets there. Uh, that was at a community college after high school, but uh, wasn't even close, so <laughs> he wouldn't even remember me. So you you uh, quickly joined the U.S. Army Special Forces. What what drove you in that direction? Because um, it didn't it doesn't sound like you came from a huge military lineage within your family. 
Yeah, my father had served as a B-17 bombardier and, uh, and, and door gunner in, uh, in bombing missions over Germany in World War II. But that's right. I didn't really come from a military family. And, you know, early on, I'd hoped to be an athlete and those dreams faded uh, pretty fast. And so I thought I wanted a life of adventure where make a contribution uh, to our country and where individuals could really make a difference. And so I thought about um, both CIA and, and at the time, the Green Berets, the Special Forces, our community wasn't quite as developed as it was today and found out I could enlist directly into the Special Forces. The hard part would then be, you know, passing the qualification course, but I managed to do that as well and then went from enlisted to officer. The, uh, you know, it, it's always interesting to, to hear what, what forced or, or drove guys to join the, uh, the military. Was it, was it one specific movie? Was it the John Wayne Green Berets or, or did well, you actually liked, meet a Green liked, Beret? Yeah, I liked that. And I talked to people who, you know, knew Green Berets. I mean, from ROTC or something, you know, it was very, very second or third hand information. Um, but I actually had a high school teacher my senior year who put a copy of the New York Times down in front of me. And it was a big story about a, a CIA base in Laos where they were running a secret war as part of the Vietnam War, supporting Hmong tribesmen. And he said, you might be interested in this. And I thought, hey, you know, uh, running secret armies might be pretty cool. So, yeah, I think I am interested. So that's what started it. Well, good. It sounds like you knew what you wanted to do from a, a young age. What, you know, I actually started out in the Marine Corps, and I do give the Marine Corps a lot of uh, credit for laying the foundation beyond my parents to, you know, for, for the remainder of my, in my success. Was the transition from special forces into the intelligence community, namely the CIA, was that an easy transition? Did, did a lot of things sort of segue over? Um, yes, pretty much. I mean, um, you know, where I ended up, serving in the CIA, invasion of Grenada, response to the Beirut bombings uh, of our Marine barracks in 83 and embassy before that, and then uh, Afghanistan covert action program, all were special operations or, you know, paramilitary activities, yes. paramilitary covert action as CIA talks about. So it was a reasonably good transition, you know, a little further afield, but I was on the operational side of CIA, you know, it would have been a different transition if I were an analyst or something else, something I hadn't done. But, um, you know, preparing for World War III uh, with the 10th Special Forces Group, if it came in Europe, helped prepare me for the secret war in Afghanistan, you know, kind of the cold, the cold war that we fought, you know, under covert means. So I, and I've, I've got to ask, uh, you know, I, I think the program is declassified. If it's not, we'll, we'll strike this, but did I read you were part of the teams that uh, were prepared to jump in a small tactical nuke? Yes. Part of that is declassified. Now the, the weapons went out of uh, the inventory in the, with the end of the cold war and yeah, a group of special forces, uh, green berets and seals were trained, um, to jump those things, either free fall or static line, and then use them to try to block the second echelon forces, you know, to, to uh, uh, halt the Soviet advance on Eastern Europe because they outnumbered us, you know, pretty substantially. And uh, uh, and so I got that training early on. When I was 23, it sounded like a really good idea. You know, I'm, I'm not sure it does so much I, anymore. I, 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 you know what? There's a lot of things that sound cool at 23. I, I now Nowadays, I'd say, wait, wait, wait. You want us to jump in a small tactical nuke 
right. and then detonate it probably on a delay. I mean, that, that sounds like a suicide mission, uh, yeah, but I understand that, the intent. Yeah. That's how a lot of my uh, teammates thought and probably true. And, and I'll tell you a funny story. Um, many, many, um, Decades, several decades later, I was getting a briefing by some of the national lab designers of the weapon, and they knew, and they were briefing me on something else about uh, foreign nuclear uh, weapons, uh, or something that one country had, and uh, uh, and they knew about our apprehensions about a timer. You know, once you touch that device, if you manage to get it in place and you had all the codes and everything else, that would be it. You know, that's success. And so they showed a picture of the device at the beginning of the briefing. And they said, you know, this might remind you of your past. And we just want to tell you, you know, we never got that timer to work properly. You know, so got a good chuckle out of it. Yeah, but I'm sure the government's like, hey, we'll pay you guys an extra $500 a month to be on this team. Um, there, there you go. And again, right. at 23, you're like sold. I need yeah. money. There you go. So, you know, for, for a lot of the audience, uh, you were involved in the uh, Soviet-Afghan war and, and arming the, uh, the resistance, uh, popularized by Charlie Wilson's war in which you, you were mentioned. Uh, that is insane. It seems like you were a part of so many historic things, as you said, from Beirut to Grenada, but to be involved in that program, that must have been an eye-opener. Uh, oh, and Go ahead. Yeah, it was. I, I describe it as the job of a lifetime, you know, to really fight our direct enemy uh, where they had made themselves vulnerable. And at a time when, you know, the, the Congress and the U.S. government were really aligned behind it. And so resources were plentiful. And I thought, this is just, this is the job of a lifetime. It might, you know, it might turn out to be a history-making event. What what did you what did you learn in respect about the Taliban at that time and the other the other uh, forces classified under resistance? I mean, did you have a level level of respect for um, them? So it wasn't the Taliban then. The Taliban really came, you know, after the Cold War was over. You know, that means you know students and and they were the younger fighters in a part of the country in, in the southern part of Afghanistan, you know, the <laughs> part, the big part of the Pashtun belt, as you know, well, and um, so the Afghan resistance was made up of seven major groups, um, four of them Islamists to one degree or another, but different ethnic groups, Tajiks in some cases, Pashtuns and others, and then uh, and, and degrees of, of fundamental fundamentalism or Islamism, and then three more secular groups who either supported the return of the king or <laughs> were just more secular in, in general. And um, and so, yes, uh, um, the, the, the Afghan people, you know, don't unite on much, but they do unite on ex expelling a foreign invader. And uh, they were brave fighters and they had all the conditions needed for a successful resistance. You know, they had a sanctuary, they had external sponsors in the United States and lots of other countries, but they had great terrain in Afghanistan, you know, to do ambushes and, and have base areas, et cetera. Um, they had the support of the populace. And so they really controlled the countryside and could get into the cities, had good intelligence. But the most important thing is they had the will to fight. Yeah. When oh, you don't always see that in a resistance movement and they did, you know, every Afghan has a gun. And um, and so our task was just to 
um, make them as good of fighters as they can through weapons, training, intelligence, and all the things we could do to support them. You, you just said that they're very good at, or they, they feel a sense of purpose on ex- expelling foreign fighters from their, uh, from their lands. That's almost a cautionary tale for a prolonged war in, uh, in Afghanistan, as we saw in the global war on terror. Um, I mean, yeah. were, were, the, were those lessons you, you, you tried to, to sort of convey to the, uh, the senior leaders? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, the challenge in, in general is to keep your main objective, the main objective. <laughs> and, you know, the reason we went into Afghanistan, um, was to, uh, overthrow the regime, eliminate that sanctuary, overthrow the regime that mm-hmm. attacked us, uh, and therefore, and then, you know, start dismantling Al-Qaeda and its allies, and to prevent another 9-11. And, you know, we kind of, after we toppled them, and then, you know, had the Iraq war, we kind of lost our way a little bit about um, really remaking, uh, you know, that we had to build strong, healthy, democratic societies in the Middle East. And that, you know, beyond our capabilities. Mm-hmm. Is. Um, and you're right, with irregular war, they're inherently protracted, particularly if insurgents have conditions like the Taliban have. You know, they had Pakistan supporting them so that no matter how many we killed, they could generate more and they could retreat, you know, rest for a while and then come back in and fight. And, you know, Afghanistan is good guerrilla country. Um, and so, you know, as a strategist or as a policymaker and as a military commander, you have to be cognizant of that, that, you know, eventually good good wars might turn bad on you if you don't make them, if you don't keep focused on your narrow objective, and if you don't have kind of a a proportionate commitment, you know, in other words, you want the locals to do as much fighting for you as you can, train and advise them, and then use our special capabilities but you don't want to substitute. You don't want to push. Every time we push the locals out of the way and do the fighting ourselves, even if we're very successful, it doesn't last. It's almost teach a man to fish. Yeah. Eat him for there a lifetime. You, there you go. So, and you were a proponent. So, you know, the tragedy, let me just go ahead. say. Yes. The tragedy of Afghanistan is it was costly. It took us a long time. We made mistakes along the road. Basically, we had achieved that um, by the, the late decade. And our political leaders of both parties, you know, had kind of given up on it, you know. So, you know, there's a lesson in there for strategists, whether you like it or not. Um, but I believe it was a mistake. Uh, I, I believe having a small force in Afghanistan would have served our interests better going forward than completely withdrawing. You know, I'm sure with media, the, the, the military and senior leaders as yourself take a lot of hits. I I know you do publicly for the decisions that are made during the war. And, you know, I feel a sense of responsibility for the outcomes of the war Um, and and watching those, those 13 young service members perish uh, during the withdrawal. uh, You know, I I remember I was on an airplane in tears uh, just at at the fact that some of them were born after nine 11, but right. War, you know, you've seen human nature in its role in conflict War is not formulaic, like starting a business. I mean, what do you say to people that have no experience in this realm that may be overly critical of how things were were handled? Yeah, so I I think, again, um, 
you know, there's this perception, this is, you, you know, somewhat unique to irregular wars where we make a large commitment, but there's this sense that they're local civil wars, we don't have a big interest there, and they're forever. And so the goal is just to end and leave, you know, at some point if you think you're not winning. And, you know, it's a mistake on several fronts. One, some of these things are different in the sense that they're harboring terrorists global jihadist terrorists who want to attack the United States. They're, it's not a local civil war. And second, you can keep them down, uh, not out, but you can certainly keep them down by, uh, once you achieve the right conditions, by you know a combination of advisors and some air power, et cetera. And I think we misdiagnosed um, the situation. And, I th- you know, and, and, you know, people's perceptions uh, of this is shaped by our political leaders and our and then the media let's face it that doesn't mean yeah. they're they're wrong but i mean you know they're not paying tons of attention to this and so i you know it's incumbent upon our leadership and our military and intelligence and national security leaders to try to convey the right uh, the right impression and what's at stake after after the 911 tax based off intelligence was there a, a wide held belief that they were postured to conduct more um you know, f- uh, attacks on American soil. Yeah. Yes. Now I, um, uh, you know, I have that second hand because I hadn't come back into government mm-hmm. yet as an assistant secretary, but all my colleagues that I subsequently served with and knew before, um, that was certainly the perception. So, you know, where I'm going with this is, you know, we kept them at bay for 20 years. We've had no major attacks on us soil since nine 11, and that seems to be sort of glossed over as a as a victory. Um, you know, to what degree do we need to reshape the American public to understand that you know these 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 are fanaticals? Right. They're going to well, stop at nothing. Right. If you that's right. And so uh, you know what we've learned, unfortunately, with nine eleven, but also. When we um, have allowed um, Al-Qaeda or ISIS to have a sanctuary for 18 to 24 months for a period, they go to a new area or we try a strategy that doesn't work or whatever the cause is, the threat goes up. So you may remember, you know, there were a series of threats right after 9-11. But in 2006, when Al-Qaeda reconstituted in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region, Mm -hmm. the threat went way up. We had a plot that we disrupted with good intelligence to blow up 10 airliners over the Atlantic Ocean. You know, in 9-11, 3,000 people or so, uh, you know, would have perished in that attack. And that's where, you know, all the TSA requirements, because it was improvised explosives, not to have the, you know, more than three ounces and all that. That's where it comes from. And, you know, and so we we mostly had internalized that lesson of not letting them uh, have that sanctuary for too long. And you're right. The key metric is not to have another attack like that, not to have another big attack. And so, um, unfortunately, you know, the guys who won at the end of the day in Afghanistan were the Taliban. They, they provided uh, support for Al Qaeda, but they weren't purely Al Qaeda. They're more, more of a local group. Uh, you know, in their various forms, Haqqanis and others. Um, yes. But um, it's still a it's still a victory for the jihadist movement in that sense that jihadists won, even if they're not part of Al Qaeda. You know, Al Qaeda will claim that victory psychologically. We will say 
we've beaten the, you know, we've really dismantled uh, pretty heavily Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and they're not capable of major attacks now. And if we keep them down, um, they won't be. But, but you're right, it is a big accomplishment not to have another major attack in 20 years. You know, having fought at the tactical level, um, which you've definitely served at, that was, we, we knew that was our job, was, was to keep them at, uh, at bay. You know, with, ISIS, let's say, isolationism, or people that believe in, in, in the U.S. that we shouldn't be abroad, where do you see the fatal flaws in that? I know, I, I understand it takes, it, it costs us billions and billions of dollars for forward projection to have troops overseas. But if we were to pull all our troops back and sort of adopt this isolationism tactic, where do you see the flaws in that? Oh, history isn't very kind to it. You know, whether you look at it in the rise of great powers in the interwar years between World War I and World War II, um, where we watched, uh, you know, Japan rearmament and German rearmament and, you know, um, didn't do anything about it until, it, you know, they had conquered uh, vast uh, areas of their regions. Um, and then, you know, 9-11, same thing of uh, uh, watching the threat, but not really dealing with it. You know, like if we could go back pre-9-11, I'm sure we would use different operations. The ones that were successful after 9-11, we would have done that before rather than a couple cruise missile strikes and you know, treating it as a passing terrorism problem. So um, that kind of isolation is, is dangerous. The, the thing people like us have to think about is how does it give rise in the body politic and how do you counter it? And so, you, you know, there is a danger for uh, foreign policy decision makers in overreaching strategically, trying mm -hmm. to do too much, particularly when it's not in your vital interest and doing too little. And both cause you great troubles. You know, the one leads you, if you do too much, you inevitably have an isolationist reaction. And if you do too little, you get a war you didn't want. You'd also mentioned uh, the, the FADA in Pakistan. Did you, uh, so in terms of our foreign partners, and I know you've got the five eyes who are close allies, always have been longstanding relationships. Did you find it, difficult to get cooperation from governments like Pakistan and the Gulf Co Cooperation Council, uh, you know, nations. Did you expect more for them or did you, did you feel you got the support? We got the support necessary to wage a, a global war on terror. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's a, a critical question. So mm -hmm. one of the things we did on the success side after nine 11 was build a global counterterrorism network that, that supported by our intelligence and other support um, that uh, allowed us to disrupt a lot of plots whether, that we couldn't do before 9-11, mm -hmm. whether they were in the Middle East or whether they're Southeast Asia or Europe or et cetera. Um, these allies play and partners played different roles. Some of them went into combat with us, uh, you know, directly and did, did a good job. Um, others, it was more intelligence and security work, you know, that their country wasn't at war. Pakistan was a real unique case because it was a frontline state. It had its own terrorism problem, um, but our interests weren't aligned. You know, so on Al Qaeda, 
they cooperated a, a fair amount and were important to us. Um, right after 9-11, as al-Qaeda leaders fled to Pakistan, they helped us arrest a bunch of them, including the number three, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed mm -hmm. and, and others. Um, but they also continued to back the Taliban, who they'd supported in the 90s, and Haqqanis, and they were making war on, you know, first a small presence in, in Afghanistan, U.S. presence in Afghanistan, and then a larger presence. And so they, you know, they were supporting our adversary that was killing Americans. And so I, in the book, I devote a lot of attention to why that was on, on you know, the, in the Afghanistan-Pakistan theater, separate from um, our, our war with al-Qaeda, where they were more cooperative, as I said. And I call them a frenemy. You know, part friend, part enemy, very mm -hmm. unique circumstance that you just don't see a lot. And, you know, the only thing worse than living with them sometimes is living without them. But it's tough living with them when they're, you know, when they're killing Americans, even if they're helping you in some other way that's saving American lives. I, you know, I felt that on the tactical level, having uh, fought in the uh, the Battle of Sadr City. Yeah. We were fighting against Iranian proxy forces. Right. Then I was with uh, one of the initial groups into uh, back into Iraq for uh, for ISIS. And uh, all of a sudden meeting with the Kurds, they ushered us out and said, we have to meet with our other uh, partners. And here come the Iranians right. Right. with their, right. uh, their their green uh, flags on their heads. And it was uh, it was very, very, it, it, let's just say a strange group of emotions. Right. I mean, 2008 to 2014 to see that, but a realization of, you know, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend and things well, are, and, you know, know, change. You know, and now we talk about a, you know, strategic competition with China and, and, you know, a uh, new cold war, uh, you know, as China has risen, China was a big ally of ours in the cold war. They were my, you know, if not number one, certainly number one ordinance supplier against the Afghan resistance. You know, we were allies then, you know, and it's the way history works. Uh, often, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to hold on China because I do want to come back to that. But I, I want to ask about. Um, so when we exited Iraq, we failed to get a status of forces agreement, which didn't allow us to keep a substantial uh, amount of troops or any troops in uh, in Iraq. It was almost like uh, for, for those I talked to the intelligence community, it was like a slow burn that they saw ISIS building up. They knew this was going to happen. But there was little to do until the Iraqi uh, government officially stated or, or, or declared, uh, I'm sorry, not declared, but requested our assistance. That had to be aggravating for, you know, individuals like you who had been fighting the war at the most strategic levels to see that happen after so many lives were uh, lost in the initial Iraq war. Yeah, no, that, that it, it, it's true, you know, by by. 2010 or so, uh, even earlier than that, the surge had largely worked. Uh, the 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 intelligence networks that we built up mm -hmm. and the special operations capacity that you you know participated in had really uh, made eventually you know short work of Al Qaeda in Iraq later become ISIS and the Shia uh, militant groups mm -hmm. uh, and. You know, and then Iraq's politics, you know, Clausewitz talks about politics and war. The war that was won militarily then got lost because of sectarian politics and stuff after we left. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't much we could do about it. But also, 
uh, our government really wanted out of Iraq. It wanted Iraq to yep. be a normal country with a war won. And so there was a lot of staring at the problem. You know, ISIS reconstituted in Syria. They fought yes. a covert war in Iraq uh, after 2011 till 2014 when they invaded. But they really had this sanctuary in Syria mm -hmm. and we gave them that sanctuary. Again, one of the things you just don't want to do against, you know, because ISIS not only wanted to take over chunks of Syria and come back to Iraq, you know, at least in the Sunni areas and all of Iraq and build its caliphate. It also wanted to strike the U.S. homeland, you know, and so uh, like Al Qaeda. And so we uh, or strike in Europe as well. And we so we um, we kind of admired the problem a little too long, at least in Syria. Uh, you know, once the Syrian civil war started, you know, then you know, you have policy options that you don't have when, you know, the, gov you know, the government is uh, not necessarily a friendly government to us is, is running the place. Um, and we didn't do much about it for a few years, too. So, yes, I think it was mostly the result of Iraqi politics, um, but it was also we let kind of, you know, like Al Qaeda gathering in Afghanistan before 9-11, yes. uh, ISIS was gathering in Syria. You, you know, Mike, it, as you're talking through this, it's, you know, I remember a, a commander looked at me when I was younger, younger in the teams. And he said, hey, Mike, patriotism has a shelf life. The American public won't stand for, for yeah. long wars. But how do you shape things for people to fully understand that this one's not going away? That terrorism will never be, again, you, you crush in one, one place. They're like, it's like a balloon of water. It just surges to another. That it's an ongoing fight and that our young men and women are going to be sent forward, uh, usually special operations, to conduct these targeted direct action raids from time to time or, or drone strikes. And this is probably still going to be a problem in 2040. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at, you know, number one, insurgencies tend to last a fairly long time if they have anything at all like favorable conditions. Mm -hmm. So when you think of the global jihadist terrorist groups, they're like a they're like a global insurgency on one level. They may operate at, you know, a clandestine level, but they're in lots of countries, in lots of regions. So the idea that you can just defeat them, you know, take this theater, then take this theater, you know, kind of is is not really accurate because someone's got to own the ground at the end of the day. And there's just too many ungoverned spaces in wide swaths of the world. And so, you know, you even look at a country like Colombia, you know, mm -hmm. they've done a good job the last couple decades in um, uh, defeating the Marxist insurgency. It had been going on since the mid 1960s, you know, after Soviet Union fell and everything else, that insurgency was still going on and had threatened Bogota, you know, around 2000 or so. And so uh, now there wasn't a heavy commitment of U.S. troops. It was advisors and assistance. It was a pretty good strategy uh, to combat it. But it, it was, you know, that assistance to the Colombian government took place over decades. And I think um, the war with these global jihadist groups is very similar. It's something you must do or you're, you're, you're taking a risk. And it's not like um, uh, conventional wars, you know, so if you've got a, this will be over in months or this will be over in a few years, it almost never will be, you know, and you even look at, we toppled the Taliban regime and kicked out Al Qaeda and we did it in a mm -hmm. few months. 
the war didn't end. You know, it was a first successful, fantastic campaign, but it didn't end the war. You know, Mike, I do remember, uh, again, when I was a uh, young and tenure SEAL officer, uh, there was a retired master chief and he looked at me and he's like, you guys are better than we were. And for a guy who hadn't had much combat yet, who looked up to that Vietnam uh, era to, to hear him say that sort of shook my foundation. And I actually say it about the current special operators serving today. They're smarter, they're faster, they're better. Uh, and in fact, the funnel is probably more competitive to get into the special forces assessment and selection course, to get in to, to, to BUDS, to MARSOC. Um, talk to me a little about special operations. I want, especially from your perspective, and, and I know it's going to be wildly positive, of what you saw from 1974 to the current status of our special operations in their ability to project forward within hours and conduct anywhere from a, a, a direct action raid or to embed with local nationals to engage in foreign internal offense, which again, for the viewers, is basically training our host nation partners to be able to defend themselves. You must... Yeah, I mean, you probably, if you were asked in 1975, you probably wouldn't have predicted the amount of capabilities and competencies that the U.S. SOCOM uh, community has today. Oh, absolutely. And also, it's, it's, it's much larger. You know, we drew down the force substantially after Vietnam. So there were only three special forces groups and two SEAL teams. And, you know, the late 70s were pretty lean years. And then we had a buildup in the 80s and then a much bigger buildup after 9-11, the, de the decade after 9-11. And, um, you know, our special operators did really great things uh, operationally and tactically in Vietnam. You know, force multipliers working with large numbers of indigenous troops doing very dangerous special reconnaissance missions and, uh, you know, where they were hunted the moment they touched down, try to survive for three days and collect intelligence and then get out. Uh, you know, the uh, Mac V SOG, the yes. uh, uh, folks and uh, Sante Raiders, you know, I served with a bunch of them and uh, they, they, you know, they, they, they knew how to plan a raid. Um, the experience are special opera, you know, I, I've said before that one of the benefits I had, um, we didn't have a lot of combat in the 70s and 80s. So I got alerted for Ang the Angolan Civil War, and but mostly it was preparing for World War III with things like backpack nuclear weapons and, and other things. So one advantage of that is that I got tons of training that later served me very well in the CIA. There's no comparison, though, compared to our brothers who came you know, after 9-11 and had training and went right into combat and then years of combat, um, there are orders of magnitude more proficient than, than we were. You know, there's just no, no, no question. And, uh, you know, as I said, the force is bigger. There's no other country in the world that has the diversity and capability of our special operations forces uh, that can do so many different missions and do it well and do it actually um, in quantity, not just quality. You know, we like to say we're a small group and elite, but, you know, for instance, if you compare our SEALs to other countries, you know, they may have like the equivalent of, uh, uh, you know, maybe a squadron or something, you know, and who, do, who does a narrow mission. You know, our SEALs do all kinds of things and we've got, you know, several teams. And so it's a great asset for the United States. If, 
If I were to ask you, again, for the public who knows very little about special operations, despite what they see in the movies, how would you describe your sort of archetype of what a U.S. special operations operator, a Green Beret, Navy SEALs look, look, looks like today? Intelligence, you know, emotional intelligence. How, how would you describe them to the public that just puts a smile on their face? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, one, obviously, um, you know, they have to be physically fit and courageous, and, and but they also have to be resourceful and think on their feet well and solve problems for which there's not a textbook solution, you know, that um, and and invent things. And, you know, and so it makes for a heck of a composite individual. And uh, and then I would say, if you take it up to the force level, you know, even though we have wonderful operators, they're not they're they're not all alike. You know, some are better at, say, unconventional warfare, Mm -hmm. sort of a Green Beret mission. Others are better at direct action, you know, and. So Green Berets may do that. They don't do it quite as well as, as say, SEALs or Rangers or, you know, some of our special mission units. And uh, so it really depends on the special operator you're talking about. But the whole they're all great in their own way and uh, they have a common traits. And then as a force, it, it's just extraordinary for the country. Do you, do you think it's one of the most innovative organizations we have in this land? I do. I do. Now, again, it's, you know, it's innovation against its mission set. So mm-hmm. it's hard to compare it with, say, cyber space. Yeah, or something of course. Quite different. Um, but yes, I think it is because inherently, you know, if you're asked to do something as a small group with a big problem, you better be innovative when you're all we're sending someplace or you're given a mission that is inherently very dangerous you know uh you better have really thought it through and practiced it and everything else you know we don't get these easy jobs and so uh um uh that you know that that necessitates innovation why why first off why would you want an easy job where's the fun in that why would you why would what's the fun in that i agree get get comfortable with being uncomfortable was which was a mantra uh, amongst all the military as well as all special operations units. Yeah. And, and to your point, man, you know, people ask me all the time and I'm sure you get this. And it, it's sort of a, I, I say a juvenile question. Who's better green berets, Navy SEALs guys. They're all awesome. Yeah. They, right. You know, that like you put you, you, and often they work together and when yep. they work together, they're even more powerful for, for, but I think as per the operator. Yeah. They're wildly intelligent, intelligent. I, I was shocked by the number of college degrees. In fact, as a troop commander, the most senior guy, I think something like five of my guys had master's degree degrees and I only had a bachelor's at, at the right. time. I mean, highly right. educated force. Right. And well, you also, with the direct enlistment, you attract people who otherwise might not be interested in the military sometimes. And I remember in my special forces uh, qualification course, we had a lot of college graduates, mm-hmm. you know, and they didn't want to be officers right away. They, you know, they wanted to be Green Berets first and, you know, and they, the army was lucky to get them, you know, and it might not have got them any other way. Yeah, funny story. I remember I was interviewing uh, General Jerry Boykin uh-huh. and he talked about uh, shortly after the war, the, the creation of the X-ray program. And I guess there was a lot of uh, angst, you know, again, hey, we can't take people without experience in the army. And uh, he, one of the sergeant majors, the oldest one in the room, said I was a special forces baby from Vietnam. I went direct from boot camp 
and in infantry school direct to uh, to a special forces group. I, I was said, too. We didn't call it eighteen X-ray, but it was direct enlistment. And you know, yep. sometimes they take it away for a while. And there's advantages to being in the army for three years. You know, particularly if you're in the Rangers or something. And but on the other hand, you know, no matter how raw that rookie is, you know, if you select them right, th- once through qualification and everything. Then add two more years on it. By the end of three years, you got a pretty darn good operator. Especially with no established habits. Yeah. If you're laying no the right foundation. Exactly. Right. You, you, you bring up the 75th Ranger Regiment. When people ask me what unit impressed the, uh, the hell out of you, they were a completely different unit. I mean, every unit was a different unit by the end of the Global War on Terror, but the 75th had completely yep. just morphed. I, I yep. called them the guerrilla force. And uh, if yeah. the 75th is, is landing in a bunch of helicopters, run. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, so, I, you know, I do want to, uh, I want to transition to your personal life, but first, you know, today's challenge is there's, uh, this is a VUCA environment for the American public, volatility, uncertainty, chaos, and ambiguity. You know, China is being painted as our enemy. Uh, do, do you think that is fear? Do you think they're just a near peer military competitor, an economic competitor, or are, are we getting the narrative wrong here or are they an enemy of the state? <sighs> Well, I think it's both in the sense that they want to be number one in the international system, and they see, they're they very realistic about it, meaning that they know the system ultimately depends on relative power, mm-hmm. and they, they can imagine where you might have a conflict to sort that out, uh, where, you know, we, we sh- sure hope that doesn't happen. But because of nuclear weapons and because of the cost of a war between superpowers, we didn't have a direct conflict in the Cold War. You know, we came close a couple times, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. And so it's not inevitable with China. And we will trade with them. And what's different between this competition and the previous one is we will still, you know, we may not give them our highest end high tech, but we will trade with them. And so the country that is likely on top, it in 2050 or so will be the one that wins the economic and technological competition. It's the most powerful country on earth across the board, not just in one area. And, uh, you know, so we have to keep our guard up, uh, but I don't, I think the main effort, even if we deter conflict, that doesn't mean we mean we win this competition. We've got to win it as a society, you know, and that's, that's the essence of it. So I think, you know, I don't know if that's a good answer to your question, but it, it isn't like we're destined for war and war will solve everything. It's a competition between two competing systems. And, you know, we've got to prevail in that. And then, you know, and then unfortunately, if attacked, we got to be able to defend ourselves yes. and our allies. No, first off, that's that's a great answer. Uh, I, I think that provides a lot of context uh, for people to help frame, despite what they're hearing in the media. Do you think our our military is better equipped having fought in the last, uh, the last 20 years in the global war on terror for the next asymmetric challenges that, that, that we may face. Um, well, we certainly have way more combat experience than, than anyone else. And so that's a, that's a big advantage, you know, to deter China, it's, it's like you need a military that has nuclear weapons, to special operators and lots of other, you know, you need Marines, you need sailors, et cetera. And so, you know, to deter China, things like our space capabilities, you know, we now have a space force, cyber, we're dominant in undersea warfare. We want to retain that. You know, we've got a 
we've got already good global strike capabilities, but we want to build them up. And then there's this competition for influence that soft can play a big role in all around the world. And uh, so you need all those things, you know, and they don't necessarily all come out of combat. Some are new things. Um, but uh, but having that that combat experience across the forces definitely um, uh, is a big asset. You know, the way you phrase it, I sort of, I smile not to make light of the situation, but it's almost like, okay, yeah, this is, this is basically a competition with China, especially on the, the, the fronts that you described, the technology space, uh, economic. So we need to be more innovative. We need to be faster. We need to right. be better and, and right. view it as an opportunity. But you, you know, you bring up special operations in their role moving forward. Yes. Traditionally after wars, the military downsizes. I think SOF has proven that within small teams, they can have a dramatic or impactful, uh, you know, uh, effects on the battlefield, even if it's training our host nations. Do you think they'll downsize our U.S. special operations anytime soon, or do you think it's here to stay? And do you think they'll maintain probably one of the most uh, arduous deployment sort of cadences of all the forces? Yeah, so I, I don't, y yes, compared to other forces. But compared to SOF the last 20 years, I don't think the deployment will be quite as bad when, you know, everything we had was going into Afghanistan, Iraq, and then Al-Qaeda elsewhere uh, beyond those two countries. Um, uh, so the deployment tempo will still be high, but not and high compared to uh, conventional forces, mm -hmm. but not, not necessarily as high as our special operators had the last two decades. And it's important... Um, you know, to have, I would say, a combination in a way of uh, deployments and things that we did to counter influence in Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere, but also to do that training you need for high-end conflict. You know, one of the reasons I would say you want to maintain a pretty robust special operations force is one, global influence, but two, if you have to work with a... Uh, an invaded country, a resistance, you know, kind of a porcupine defense. Think mm -hmm. Taiwan, think the Baltic states, even Ukraine. Special operators, you know, unless it's a very technical area like uh, big air defense systems or others, they're what you want there, you know, before and during the conflict. And then, you know, this problem we face with China, where it holds our bases, our surface ships at risk, this anti-access aerial denial capability. If you're going to insert ground forces, Special operators, particularly SEALs, are likely to be the, the first thing you reach for, you know, because they can operate in very small groups and get big effects and, and you know, and survive in that environment. So there's a lot of utility across mission sets, even in yes. this great power competition and, you know, and potentially conflict that I think that makes um, special operations forces, uh, you know, a force multiplying asset and one you you want to be really careful with about uh reducing too much so uh again before we get into your personal life this this question had come in uh, and I, I this is pretty funny did we did we overestimate uh the 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 capability of the russian military given what's going on in the uh the ukraine that just oh, ab absolutely I mean, no question, you know, this talk about they were going to win in five days and, you know, they were formidable. There's no, no, no question. It was overestimated. Did you, did you think it was going to be this bad logistically, tactically, strategically? 
No, I have to confess, I, I'm glad it's this bad. Of course. Uh, uh, but, uh, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a bit surprised too. I'll tell you a story. You know, when I was a special operator, first part of my uh, special forces uh, 10 years, uh, first half enlisted and then officer, I you know did counterterrorism in Central America and other stuff. But um, preparing for World War Three, you know, I thought the Soviets were 10 feet tall. I mean, how we yeah. would survive in Eastern Europe, you know, seemed very daunting. Getting in was a challenge because of the air defenses. And then, you know, they've crushed resistances and, you know, they'd have us all surrounded. And so it seemed like a daunting problem. When I saw them up close in Afghanistan, uh, you know, supporting the Afghan resistance and had agents telling me things and others, I thought, these guys are weaker than we think, you know, uh, uh, they, they, you know, they're a bear. And if you wake up all that firepower, you don't want to be on the wrong end of it, but they're a conscript army. They had drug problems. They had all kinds of things that allowed the Afghan resistance to ambush them. So when I saw, for instance, tanks charging forward, not supported by infantry, I thought this reminds me of Afghanistan. No wonder they're getting clobbered. It's hey, that's the power of propaganda, and hopefully, yeah. uh, hopefully, every other nation thinks we're we're, we're ten feet tall. Right. So, you know, Mike. Uh, again, for a lot of the viewers, they don't understand the uh, the high level of stress, risk, uh, and sacrifice uh, amongst our intelligence community members. I mean, leaders are looking for you for the final decision to say, Mike, what should we do here? How did you manage? throughout your long career, sort of the personal and psychological toll and the cadence at which you had to, to work. I'm sure you were working 20 hour days and, and managing four hours of sleep. How did you manage that for so long? And what lessons did you learn along the way that you may uh, sort of uh, extend to a younger man like myself? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it was different things at different stages. So as a special operator and as a CIA operator, it was that um, 24 seven and being gone 10 months of the year and uh, uh, everything else. And, uh, and a lot of stress because of, um, uh, you know, some counterterrorism operations. If you have an airline hijacking or something, you know, hostages could die and, you know, it's very intense period over three, three, three days, say, or something different experience. But with Afghanistan against the Soviets or Grenada, where it's a much bigger operation, then, you know, <laughs> lots of things can go wrong. Unfortunately, it happens in war and you bear the responsibility of did I plan correctly? Did I rehearse correctly? Uh, you know, a lot of the burdens of command. And then as a senior official, same thing. Um convincing our political leadership when you're the senior expert that this is the right thing to do um, and they trust you, you know, uh, this this raid can succeed. Bin Laden raid, for example, you know, this is the right way to do it and we can do this. Uh, uh, you know, you bear a lot of uh, stress and responsibility for that, that president or others is relying on your judgment for this. And operators, you know, I'm no longer an operator at that point, but those who are going to go do it, you know, you hope you made the right decision there too, or convinced our very top leaders, you know, to make that decision. So different kinds of stress at different periods, but, uh, um, you know, given the nature of the, uh, global fight against the jihadists, uh, you know, 
I was in one theater or another probably a third of the time and then in Washington fighting those battles and, you know, et, et cetera. So it was pretty nonstop. But not, nothing like being an operator. So I don't, you know, it, it's uh, it's just a different kind of stress. I, I, you know, I beg to differ. Uh, yeah. We were, we, I got to, you know, I, I hate to say this. I don't want to say we were having fun, but we were also surrounded by 40 of our brothers, if not yeah. more, 12, 12 of our brothers. Right. And you had a sense of purpose. Yeah. And, and get, get, what's the, uh, the phrase from that movie? Best job I ever had, no matter how much yeah. it sucked. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't envy you in that fight that you had to fight but it's good to know that we've got good men up on the hill uh, fighting, not only the external fight and I don't want to say the internal fight, but also dealing with the internal politics, which is just a reality of life uh, ultimately to make the right decision and uh, which impacts our, our guys on the front lines. You know, Mike, we, we close this out with a question where we believe, you know, the greatest thing and you've done congrats on the book again, uh, for those that, that uh, are listening, it's by all means, Available. I'm sorry, by all means available, uh, memoirs of a life in intelligence, special operations and strategy. And I recommend you uh, pick this up, especially for those that are maybe political science students, uh, you know, uh, let's say uh, students of war, students of leadership, pick this thing up because Mike has uh, definitely uh, sort of shown vulnerability to, 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 to write about his life, lessons learned, successes and failures alike. Uh, what are, what do you consider the sort of three keys to success or things that you've learned along your way that you would bestow again on someone like me or, or, or the younger generation to set them up for success? Yeah. So one is, you know, you want to do what you love ideally, but unfortunately you may not be good at what you love. And so you've got to be, um, you've got to find that thing that you can both be passionate about and be good at um, and work hard at it. You know, sometimes, you know, no matter how good you are when you start, you know, you, it just takes hard work to, you know, to develop a consummate special operator or CIA officer. And then I would say policymaker, uh, no matter how smart you are, you know, if you don't have the right experiences, um, you're going to be challenged. And so there's that. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's sort of standard advice, but, you know, you really, I believe in two things um, early on that kind of attracted me to special operations in the first place, even though I didn't know what to call it. And, um, uh, you know, there were these different, when I was a young soldier in the army, we, we taught a lot of leadership and different theories of leadership and motivating and and some of them which applied more to special operators really uh, devolved around expertise were you really really good at something but also were you the kind of leader that people wanted to follow even if you didn't have the designated position you know would they would they pick you over someone else would they pick you to be your leader even their leader even though you're not necessarily the most senior guy and Aspiring to that or developing those those qualities, I think uh, I, I found it helpful in my career. And then broadening as you as you go on, as you're ready to take on broader responsibilities. So you know, being really good at some things, and then and learning more and more, but then broadening. And so that's what I did later in my career as I transitioned from operator to policymaker. 
um, you know, adding things like space and cyber made me more effective across the board in the Pentagon, not just in the stuff that I grew up with. And, um, uh, you know, and so there's an appropriate, uh, appropriate time to, um, you know, to broaden too, I would say. And, uh, and then just, you know, don't warm the seat, you know, fortune favors the bold. So if you get an opportunity, you know, seize it. Uh, uh, another thing I learned in the course of my career, I, fellow I had um, served with in the late Bush administration, although he was senior to me, he was Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, and he had a career at Goldman Sachs. And he said one of the keys to his success was not just doing his job well, but job enlargement, you know, taking on more responsibilities. And, you know, you got to be careful with that, that you don't look like you've got really sharp elbows. But that is how you develop great leaders who can lead organizations is you give them more and you give them more and they seek out more. And uh, I was fortunate at stages of my career that I had mentors who, you know, did that uh, with me, uh, Afghanistan and, and some others. And many would say the, uh, the same about you and the mentorship you've given. So I appreciate those five rules. Uh, we definitely sort of, uh, again, memorialize those and push those out for the audience to learn. Um, Mike, is there anything else you want the audience to know? Again, your book, uh, which came out today. Comes um, out today, yep. It comes out yeah. today. Uh, again, by all means available. You can find it on Amazon. I've already checked. It's up. Uh, please look it up. Uh, anything else where, where people can find you uh, and maybe contact you to come in and speak? Uh, that's great. Well, they can certainly get me through you and, uh, uh, um, and, and, you know, my publicist at Kanaf <laughs> and uh, happy to happy to talk to the right groups. Absolutely. Okay. Mike, again, thank you for your service, your long service. Uh, it is a uh, thrill to have you on, especially uh, knowing who you were as a young special operator for, for a very long time. So uh, uh, I'm glad that things circled around. We finally got to, uh, to connect. It was a joy to be with you, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. Kindred spirits. Likewise. And for everyone, this has been the Mentional Everyday Warrior. Uh, remember, go leave a review on Apple Podcast, on Google Cast, whatever your platform is, leave a review. We read all of them. That's how we get better. No matter how critical it may be, that's the mechanism we use to not only select guests, but to improve our show. So again, thanks for listening.